This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. I swear to God, there better be something wrong. Hello? Hey, True Crime Kent, how are you? It's three in the morning, Op. It is? Oh, I had no clue. We we don't follow clocks up here, down here, over here. I was just making lasagna. Do you know what lasagna is? Wanted to know if you could knock out an episode while this bakes. Now, who do you think it is? I'll give you one guess. Look, I, I have to be at work in four hours. Do, do you hear me when I said it's three in the morning? And it's a Tuesday? Awesome. Awesome. Yes. It, it shouldn't take four hours. Not at all. No. Uh, so so what are we going to uh, what, what are we going to talk about today? All right, man. All right. You, you win. Hold up. Well, I, I don't want to push you at all, but I, I, I really don't have all day. This is only going to bake so long, and I got to get to bed soon. So, you know, if I don't get my eight hours, I get pretty grumpy. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Op. I wouldn't want to interrupt your sleep cycle. Look, we're we're going to be talking about a guy that wanted to be a villain so bad he couldn't stand it, but was so bad at being a villain that he became more famous for his actions as a corpse than his actions as a living, breathing person. He went by many names during his life and death. The Oklahoma outlaw, the dope addict, the train robber, the bandit who wouldn't give up, Elmer. This guy has a story to tell, though, Op. Almost 100 years of story, 65 of which occurred after he was dead. You can't tell his story, though. His lips curled up and dried out long ago. That's why we're going to do it for him. Get comfortable, this one's a doozy. Today, we're cracking open the curious case of Elmer McCurdy. December 8th, 1976. Crew members of the popular television show The Six Million Dollar Man are prepping a scene that involves a haunted house-style carnival ride when they come across a real-life horror. The laugh in the dark hasn't had this many people in its lungs for some time, and it seems to breathe around the man who will make a gruesome discovery and hails him deeper into the darkness away from the entrance, then exhales towards a gaping mouth, a tunnel, tongue laid out before it in the form of coaster track. The residue of fear lingers in such places, Nervous energy, negative energy that sticks to the rib cage of structures designed to intimidate. It's particularly thick at the crest of the hill leading into the cave, and the crew member smiles in an attempt to lighten his own mood, likely as he approaches what looks like a poorly put together prop hanging from a noose, naked, spray painted with a reddish glow in the paint hands barely covering what appears to be genitalia. The body, on closer inspection, quite realistic, though strangely small. The face sporting the features of a mummified man, but the body like that of an eight-year-old fetus. Or maybe more accurately, an 88-year-old in the fetal position. 
An active imagination is easily tortured by an empty place, especially one with odd history. The inactivity of a once-bustling psychiatric hospital, for example, can feel like the stretched edges of a veil, feel like the past has taken a smoke break, sauntering off sideways rather than having been replaced by the future. The crumbling drywall, stained heavy doors, and forgotten wheelchairs remaining not so much as stragglers of a forgotten age, but as the shedded skin of energy burns so purely that a shadow of it is left behind, like a silhouette of an atomic blast victim, imprinted on a wall. The man steals a drag of his cigarette as he takes the eyesore in, asks himself if the prop is TV-worthy, and on his own exhale decides it's not. Steve Austin and a spray-painted mannequin hanging from the rafters would be the opposite of spooky. The $6 million man in the same scene as a two-cent dummy won't play. This shithole is too heavy on distraction and light on attraction. Attractions themed by horror are in many ways gross. Creepy locals dressed up like rape-thirsty butchers within, thrilling at the opportunity to stalk and scare without reprimand, living at a sick fantasy in many cases taking particular delight in making the pretty little girls squeal. There's a slimy feel to haunted theme rides, and the crew member tries to shake his discomfort as he comes to a stop before the tired and corny old prop he means to remove. But now there's something real about this naked, leather-faced, hanging from a noose character as he notices a hand failing to cover a tuft of pubic hair considers a Y-shaped scar above the clavicle as if it had been autopsied once upon a time. The prop manager hesitates to touch it. The thing is ridiculous looking, however, and it has to come down, so he shakes off his sudden apprehension long enough to grab the prop's thin arm, which, in response to the man's tug on it, immediately breaks off at the elbow. The reddish face seems to grin now, a face absorbed by long-lost insanity, a face much too realistic to have been molded on such a ridiculous and poorly constructed mannequin, a mannequin surely made of paper mache as the man had initially thought, but now, with the forearm gripped in his white-knuckled hand, he realizes, against all of his better judgment, that he's holding a piece of a corpse. It's instantly clear that before him is a long dead body that likely has traveled far and wide and whose story seems about to puff out in the form of dust, dust from a rotten mouth to regale his new friend of its history down here in the dark. Recording has initiated. Always great to kick things off with the soothing, sexy voice of Jack Luna, isn't it, Op? Yeah, he soothes. He sexes. So much soothe, so much sexing. Yeah. Well, anyway, okay, we're going to recap on what he just went over here in just a second. But first I wanted to know, uh, do you do you give a hoot what happens to your body after you die? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Bali's a temple, man. So what 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 are your wishes? I don't know, whatever you'd want for a standard temple, I guess. Uh you know, clean it pretty well, make sure the hinges are good. You know. I was I don't know so, much about temples, I just know what it says. Are you gonna get cremated? Are you gonna get buried? Are you gonna have are you gonna get turned into a tree? Oh what, what, what do you you know, I never really thought about it. I was thinking, like, kind of mounted, like, maybe at a wax museum, like, everything here is wax, except for that guy over there, the operator, he is real. Feel his cheeks. Like that. I think that'd be pretty cool. You're you're actually getting dangerously close to to where our story ends up today. Now, I, I personally don't, I don't care what happens to my body after I'm dead. Throw me in a ditch, pile dirt on me, shoot me out of a cannon into a J.C. Penny. I mean, whatever, grind me up and feed me to third world children that are starving. I, it doesn't matter. I, I don't care. I'd agree with that. I, I, I've I, moved on. This this body will uh, do what it's going to do as far as be warm food. And if uh, if my if my estimates are correct, I should, you know, get a new model <laughs> some point in the future. <laughs> oh, so you're into reincarnation. No, not as much reincarnation, I guess, as resurrection. Okay. Both have R's in them, though, so, you know, one just sounds a little more Eastern, the other one's a little more, I don't know, less politically correct. <laughs> well, I don't know what happens after we die up. I think we just get – so even scientists agree that energy cannot be created or destroyed, and we are nothing but walking balls of energy, right? So something's got to happen. Yeah, something. That's a story for a different day. Today we're talking about – We'll just call it the corpse right now, and we'll get into it here in just a minute. On December 7th, 1976, a body was found while shooting the episode The Carnival of Spies for the show The Six Million Dollar Man. You, you probably grew up on The Six Million Dollar Man, didn't you? Yeah, bigger, better. We can build him better, stronger, faster. Yes. Yeah, Steve <laughs> Austin. <laughs> not yeah, the wrestler. The not the hell the yeah. Yeah, not that guy. No, the spring, springy. Whenever he jumped or like yeah. moved around. <laughs> yeah. It's cool. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, uh, one of the crew members of the Six Million Dollar Man, a young man by the name of Chris Haynes, was a set dresser for the show, and he was working that morning. Now, in that episode, they were going to be they were the location they were shooting in was called the Laugh in the Dark Amusement Ride. Uh, it was one of those typical kind of cheesy. You get in a small coaster cart, get on some tracks, go into the dark, and there's bullshit jumping out at you and screaming in your face and Yikes. bats falling in your hair and probably vomit that you just set in in the seat, that kind of stuff, right? It's not sanitary. Yeah, I don't – I've never – no, don't know what you're talking about, but that does not sound safe. You know, the the scare – the little scare houses, you get in the cart, you go down a track, it's dark in there, they've got mannequins hanging out that scream and, and all that all that junk. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, but something's throwing up on you. That sounds more like a German no, ride to me. No, I'm just saying. I I went to a state fair one time, and I didn't realize how they cleaned out these rides. And all they do, all they do is this guy smoking a Marlboro pulls a water hose. This is when somebody vomits in a ride. And I've seen this. I witnessed this with my own eyes. A guy smoking a Marlboro pulls a water hose out from underneath the ride, 
and opens the gate thing and just sprays it down and then ushers the next little snot-nosed kid in. That's that's the oh, that's how they cleaned them or that's how they were doing them in like 97. I witnessed that with my own eyes at the county fair here in 97. Wow. That's I don't know how else I guess I would hope that they would do it, but I guess time is money, right? So you just get in there, you sit down in some watery vomit. And you you go on your you take your little ride. So that's the kind of ride that these that this the show was being shot in. One of the haunted house rides. It's on a track. You go through the dark. It's just a haunted house, but you ride instead of walking through and risk getting groped by a child molester that applied for the job in August and yeah. immediately got approved because there's no screening process for haunted houses. You said 1976, right? Yes. Well, that was a really big year for coins. You know this, right? You know that. Oh, fuck. Do you know why? I, I, why? Because in 1976, it was the bicentennial. 1776 to 1976. So there's a lot of history there. So get comfy. If Or I can just give you one fact or get comfy and I'll give you like an hour's worth. Which one? Just one or an hour? Let's just... Get one out. Get get it out. Get one. Okay. One. Okay. Let's do one. All right. I'll give you a really cool one. I, so the, yeah, the Eisen, yeah, the Eisenhower dollar. I don't know if you've seen that. The silver dollar. Eisenhower. Ike. You know. <laughs> In 1976, there were two versions of that one. Variety one features a low relief design with the thick, bold, non-serif lettering. Variety two features a stronger design with lettering that has serifs. It's thinner and more delicate, yet it's higher in relief. It's you know, pretty pretty cool. <laughs> So they're working on this laugh in the dark amusement ride. They're getting it ready for this episode, the Carnival Spice for the Six Million Dollar Man. Our young man Chris Haynes here notices a set piece that kind of sticks out. It's not jiving with what they're going for for this episode. It's hanging from the ceiling. It's been painted bright red and it's got a blue light on it. And it's just kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. One of the lead set dressers asks Chris to remove it. Chris walks up. He's kind of feeling it out. You know how am I going to get this thing down? He gives a tug on the arm. First off, he notices that it's extremely light, but the second he tugs on the arm, it falls off. So he picks it up, he looks it over, and notices that on the the stub, it looks like it's very distinctly a bone sticking out of the end, wrapped in what looks like beef jerky. Mm, whoa, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This would be a this would be a bit of a shocker to a a young man that grew up in a helicopter family. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Chris shows it to his fellow workers, asks them if they think it's real. They agree it looks real. So they go over, check out the body a little bit further, investigate it. Now the 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 hands of this of this mannequin are covering its 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 goods and berries. Or mm. if if goods and berries were there, it's covering it. Kind of like, you know, oh I'm in, I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed. Don't don't look. Don't look. Yeah. Covering its penal institution. It's penal institution that will they push the remaining hand to the side and see that it it has it is anatomically correct. It's got a little dried up little anatomical piece. (laughs) Yeah. Penis there with testicles, little dried up testicles. Now, they are very dried up. It's very small, very dried up. Just a little. It looks like a, you know, those slim gems that you get that are the round slim gems. Yeah. Yeah. The small ones that are almost like the sample size, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a Slim Jim, very skinny, little dried-up pencil dick. And also, there's even a tuft of pubic hair. Oh. Now, somebody put a lot – they think, well, somebody put a lot of work into this mannequin, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can't get pubic hair on Slim Jim. Well, no, you can. 
There is a gas station down the road where you can get that as an upgrade. Never mind. We're good. Continue, please. What? Huh? What kind of gas stations do you have where you... You know, just the ones with meat. <laughs> lots of meat, lots of hair. <laughs> just a typical gas station. Anyways, they notify Universal Studios security guard, who's also an off-duty police officer. He goes in, takes one look. He's like, yeah, that's a dead body. And his, his remark is just what Long Beach needs. Another dead sailor. Now... The pike here where this uh, amusement ride was known for, this kind of carnival-esque little area, was known for as a haven for, for misfit kids and sailors and just a bad spot. Not a good place. That's why it was mm. favored so highly by Universal Studios and filming companies to, to film there because it was often empty. They could buy it out easily, close it for the day, and then film as much as they wanted. So nobody takes this seriously, not a single person. The, the security guard says, this is what Long Beach needs. Another dead sailor kind of walks off and then comes back and he's like, you know what? You know what? It would be hilarious if we pranked the paramedics. So they call 911 and let the 911 dispatch know that they've got a, a male there inside the Laugh in the Dark amusement ride that is suffering from a severe case of dehydration. Because <laughs> of his small penis. <laughs> mm. So the the ambulance arrives and they 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 see the body and everybody has a laugh. <laughs> Meanwhile, some kid three miles away is dying from blunt force trauma. Oh gosh! Everybody's having a good time with this this corpse. This is a person. Let's talk more about that kid with the blunt force trauma. What happened there? <laughs> Eventually, after everybody's had their laugh. At, at this this dried up mummy's expense, he's taken to the coroner's office and was received by a doctor, Noguchi. Now, this is the same man that had done autopsies for he's kind of a celebrity in L.A. Mm. Uh, for dead people. He, he did autopsies for Sharon Tate, Natalie Wood, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Marilyn Monroe, William Holden, Robert F. Kennedy, John Belushi. This guy's seen a lot of famous royal genitals. Wow. He's flicked them all. I mean, just a lot of expensive penises and vaginas. And in Janis Joplin's case, a lot of diseased genitals. Yeah, I was going to say there's some, that's not quite the it's not the quite the human version. Didn't she have like three STDs? I think I remember reading that in one of the autopsy reports or something. Yeah, yeah. There's three letters in STD. She had yeah at least that many letters. Yeah. So let me ask you really quick. What what would you do if you were the had the opportunity to mortify through being a certified registered mortician? Um, if you had the opportunity to have a dead celebrity wheeled in on a cart and you were the mortician in that case, which one would you pick, dead or alive? You can pick anybody, but they have to be celebrity that we all would know. I mean, at that point, it's just a it's a dead body op. What what do you? I'm a little confused and somewhat curious as to what it is exactly that you're getting at here. Just you get to have. It's fun to think I get to, I get to be the mortician, you know. And it's it's just fun. You get to like kind of peruse their their body. They they're dead, so it doesn't matter. I'm not saying you got to do anything like you know oh. tell it secrets or anything, but. You know, like which dead celebrity would you want wheeled in if you were Doctor Chungus and a celebrity? Ugh. Okay, and to make it fine, when they wheel in, you just all you have to say is, "Oh, well, here's what you would say. Here's you. You would say, oh, all right, okay. Uh, well, in the name of science, as long as you kept saying in the name of science, 
then everything would be fine through that whole experience. So in the in the name of science, which celebrity would you mortify? Marilyn Manson. Mm, that's a good one. You know why? Well, you wonder like what's still there and what's not there. <laughs> I want to count his ribs. Oh, yeah, to see whether or not he was flexible enough to do the... That was a big rumor. The whole time I was in like middle school and in high school is that Marilyn Manson had his bottom two ribs removed so he could diddle his own daddle. Yeah, I remember that ru- I remember that rumor. Never never really confirmed it good or bad. I would go with Captain Kangaroo. Why? I don't know if his hair was real. He's the he's one of those kind of guys where I was like, "Oh, he seems so pleasant and everything." I just want to know whether or not he was one of those kind of guys that's like everything that's outside of his shirt looks normal, but he's also like some you know, really into, like, abuse. And so his body's all maybe, like, beat up and stuff. And then I'd be like, ha-ha. My second answer is probably Wendy Williams. Who's that? She's like a talk show host, but there is something weird going on there. Oh, With the yeah. body. And just yeah. out of pure biological curiosity, like, what? What is happening? You know that comedian that does the puppets? What's his name? Jeff Dunham. Jeff Dunham. Wendy Williams looks like one of his puppets. Like like her skin seems like it was molded out of clay. Like you could see the finger grooves where the doctor like adjusted her cheek. Like she's already been embalmed? Yes. I agree with that. I think I'm going to go with number two, Wendy Williams as well. So just call me when she shows up and we'll both kind of play around with her. <laughs> she's dead in the name of science. Okay, so Dr. Naguchi signs for the body, but it will be autopsied, however, by uh, a Dr. Joseph Cho. Both both of these young, beautiful Asian men. So, so it looks like this corpse is going to get finessed by some some smooth, beautiful Asian hands, and that's nice. That's always that's, very that smooth. is nice. That's how I hope to go. The first thing that that Dr. Joseph Cho notices is that the body's already had an old. It's been autopsied before. It's got an old Y incision uh, that had kind of been phased out by the by the late 1800s early 1900s it's it's an old school incision that's something that the old heads would have done you know this mm. typical y incision starts at the collarbones comes down to the y and then goes down to the to the pubis yes so he sees hey this has got an outdated and old fashioned cutting job here somebody has has already done some work here and it's been very long ago so we're dealing with something right off the bat here that's at least from the late 1800s early 1900s so we've got a little bit of a time frame then Dr. Choi notices a small dimple a little bit to the left side of the right nipple and a little below it. And he immediately assumes, hey, that looks like an old gunshot wound. Now, keep in mind this body at this point is completely mummified. It's about five foot six and about 60 pounds. So it it's nowhere near the weight or height that it was in life. Mm-hmm. About the size of like a – probably like a 13-year-old a, a boy, right? Okay. Yeah. Now, the skin couldn't be cut with a scalpel, so they ended up having to open it up with a, a skull saw. Inside, they discovered that the brain and all the organs were hard as rocks. It all just turned into just rocks. But everything was still there, still accounted for. Was the incision around the skull, was that also, was that old school or was that more of the modern, like, curved incision made from the acrimonium process along the medial border of shoulder in front of the mid-axillary line bilaterally? Is that the same that they were using? All of the work that this that this man had received prior to this day was done by an old school doctor. Okay, so probably 
All right, so it's probably a, a more of a supine position with the wooden block under the shoulders so that the neck is in an extended position when they make the ins. Okay, I'm I'm tracking. I'm tracking. I just wanted to just make sure. Yes. They also discovered that the right lung had hemorrhaged, and this had happened while the person was living, which Oof. further kind of provides some backup to the to the bullet hole theory that the death was from a bullet wound. Mm-hmm. They then discover traces of bullet damage on various organs, and by following the path down, they they get to the left hip bone, is, and that's where they found a, a copper fragment embedded. Now, at this point, they, they contact a ballistics expert. His name was LAPD Sergeant Lee Crewman, who was brought in to inspect the fragment, and he let them know that it was part of an antique bullet assembly called a gas check. Now, the purpose of a gas check, it was kind of like a cap that went on the bottom of the bullet, and its only purpose was to prevent gases from from going around the bullet. To to it, it just kind of helped contain the gases, improve the velocity, and also kind of stabilize the bullet. I can see that it isolates the bullet's trajectory as opposed to the casing. Exactly, kind of makes a seal. It just makes yeah. a seal in the barrel. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Now. The kind of gas check that, that was located in this corpse's hip came from a thirty two thirty caliber bullet and was from a gun that had six right rifling. Okay. He also told them that this type of gas check was first used around 1905 and discontinued right before World War II. So now they have a, a pretty good idea of the time frame that this, this mummy bit the dust and then continued to gather dust. And uh, that puts the time of death around 19, between 1905 and 1940. Okay, that's helpful. Okay. Unfortunately, if they had just kind of taken a look inside the mouth, it could have saved them a lot of trouble because while removing the jaw and mandible for teeth analysis, Dr. Choi discovers an old penny in the back of his throat, dated 1924. It's in the very back of the mouth. He also discovers several old ticket stubs that had an address on them and a business name. <laughs> The business name was Louis Sonny's Museum of Crime. The address was 524 South Main Street, Los Angeles. Whoa. It was like, a, it was like if, if lost, please return to. It's interesting to note that, you know, we are later going to find out these tickets have, have, been in, have been in this corpse's mouth for uh, about 30 years, which is pretty cool. Now, all of this information is reported locally in all the papers, as well as many papers across the country, and eventually they get a hint. Calls start flooding in, letters start flooding in. This, it turns out, they have discovered the body of the infamous Elmer McCurdy, the Oklahoma outlaw. He had finally been found again, missing for decades. Wow. That's cool. I'll tell you what, Op, let's, let's, let's start back at the beginning, and that beginning just so happens to kick off. In 1880. Oh, good year. Now, Elmer McCurdy was born January 1st, 1880 in Washington, Maine. And uh, he was born to a, a young 17-year-old by the name of Sadie McCurdy. And uh, unfortunately, the father was unknown. Now, it's possible that Elmer's father was actually Sadie's cousin, Charles Davis. And the reason people suspect that may be the case is because Elmer would later use the name Charles Davis as an, al- 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 an al- alias. Al- as an alias. alias? What just happened to me? What you probably had a small grand mal seizure, is what I'm going to just That's guess. what it felt like. My brain yeah. just went... Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, your left side of your face went all stupid. So I- I'm going to leave that in there, all of that. It's <laughs> good. Now, Sadie's brother George and his wife Helen adopted Elmer. So now this can get kind of confusing, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it down 
quickly, or, or try to more simply. So, Elmer is born to Sadie, who is seventeen years old. Okay, and an unknown father. Now, Sadie's brother George and George's wife Helen. So, Sadie's brother and sister-in-law adopt Elmer, and they do this because they want to raise Elmer in order to save Sadie from embarrassment, from having a son out of wedlock and having to, to rear a child without a father because that's that's humiliating in 1880, right? Probably also because they're pretty sure the uncle is the dad. So that, that probably has – well, that's not that embarrassing. There's nothing wrong with that. Hmm. Okay. Where are you from? Okay. Oh, Kentucky. Hmm. I'm feeling – Feeling some judgment emanating off you, uh, but that's okay. George dies of tuberculosis in 1890. So as far as Elmer is concerned, this is his father. They would never told him any different. He's been raised to believe that Helen and George are his mother and father. So George is, as far as he is aware, Elmer's father dies of tuberculosis, uh, tuberculosis in 1890. Elmer's 10 years old at the time. Now, unfortunately, George's death forces Helen and Sadie Helen being who George believes is his mother and Sadie being his biological mother to move to Bangor, Maine, where George's brother lived. Now, he he had brought them out there to help help the two find jobs. George had been the, the breadwinner of the house. He had, so after he died, they were kind of in financial trouble, so they had to find jobs quickly. Okay. When they move out to Bangor, Maine, Sadie begins to kind of start taking responsibility for Elmer. And it's at this time she gets comfortable comfortable enough to reveal to him that Sadie is that she is actually his mother, not his aunt, and that Helen is actually his aunt and not his mother. Whoa, that's a lot for a little kid. Yeah, yes, absolutely. A ten year old. This is a this is a real head scratcher. Yeah, that would be the one where. Yeah, I'm at the diner with the salt shakers trying to like kind of show him. Okay, now see, this is Sadie. This is your. This is actually what's happened. The pepper is just, you know, you disregard the color. It has nothing to do with the story. It's just all people. Very confusing. Yeah. Non-surprisingly, this does leave Elmer very jaded. He starts hitting the bottle at a very young age. Around 11, he starts kind of starts hitting the bottle. Alcohol. Hit, hitting the booze. Maybe finding daddy at the bottom of the bottom of the bottle so that that would have been eight he was born in 1880 right so this would have been around 1891 okay okay you got it you look like you've got a fact that you want to bring up oh i I have one but it's it's a little off it's a little off it's he's he would have been like 13 when this when this happened but i don't want to it's it's tempting but i i don't want to i don't want to derail the story okay well elmer also Surprising to nobody, starts getting in trouble. Starts getting fights and starts getting in fights in bars around the age of fifteen. At around sixteen, it is at, it is now eighteen ninety six. Elmer moves in with his grandfather Hardin. I'm sorry, I can't let it go. I there there is a uh, you were about to explode. I can see it oh in your goodness. eyes. You look like it, somebody uh, trying to take a shit. That as was soon as you went over eighteen ninety four to eighteen ninety seven, just say it. Okay, there is a there is a dime that was mint proof. Aliasberg pedigree sold at auction for one million nine hundred and ninety nine ninety seven thousand five hundred dollars from eighteen ninety four. It was amazing, amazing, beautiful. That's all. Fuck was a Elmer moves in with his grandfather. God damn it! Oh. At around sixteen, 
Elmer moves in with his grandfather, Hardin, who helps him find an apprenticeship under a local plumber. Now, Elbert, Elmer quickly becomes known as an expert plumber, so he's no hack. Like, this guy's, you know, he, he's a quick learner. He's a hard-ass worker, and he becomes mm. a reliable expert plumber in his, in his, in his hood. In his hometown there. Now, I don't know what kind of plumbing was going on in the in the late 1800s or, or how complicated that even was. If it was just a, a hollowed-out log ran out to a ditch where everybody's shit would congregate. Are you hitting that up right now? Yeah, I was just looking up. Uh, I've got too many filters on my Googles. I can't even look up that SH word. Uh, never mind. Can't look it up. <laughs> Sorry, it just keep, keeps taking me to Sesame Street instead of the SH word, and yeah, it's not going to work. Okay, well, you know, long and short of things, Elmer's, Elmer's uh, just to clarify, because these relationships get confusing. Elmer is mm-hmm. now 16. He's living with his grandfather, Harden. His grandfather, Harden, has kind of straightened him out a little bit. He's still drinking, still dabbling in the booze, but he's got a good job. He's an expert plumber at 16 years old. Unfortunately, in 1898... The recession hits, and everybody starts losing their jobs, including Sadie and Helen. Elmer is 18 at the time. Elmer also loses his job. So the recession hits, the shit hits the fan, and and everybody is is out of work. So it's like COVID for 1898, but not like that at all because no disease is involved. Yeah, right. Except for maybe tuberculosis. That's still running amok. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a bad one. Now, unfortunately, in 1900... Elmer's 20 years old. Sadie, his biological mother, dies of a ruptured ulcer. And one month later, his grandfather Hardin dies of Bratz disease. Sounds like a positive disease. Sounds like a... It is not. It is not a... You know. I believe it's it's very damaging to the... Oh. If memory serves the liver. Oh, that's too bad. You know, I don't understand that. Why they always give... They'll, they'll give a real sunshiny name to a disease that is just horrible. In in World War II, there was a disease that many of the, the POWs got in the in the camps over in Asia called beriberi. It sounds so cute. But literally, it would swell your hand up into big bags of just pus, and then they'd explode. And if it got on anybody, they would get beriberi. It just... Come on. That sounds like my favorite cereal. Yeah, right. I know. You know what else sounds like a lot of fun if you're like, if you don't know anything? If I didn't know anything and somebody and a doctor was like, hey, you've got AIDS, mm-hmm. I would be like, awesome. I'm overworked yeah. and underpaid. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> yes. Or shingles, because it makes you sound like a hard worker. Yes. You've been on the roof a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of those. Elmer's now alone. His biological mother's dead. His grandfather's dead. With nothing holding him, you know, he's got no ties now. He's, he's a lone man. He, he jumps a train and goes out looking for adventure. He takes a free ride west, looking for something new, maybe some excitement, just wanting to start over. So Elmer's, Elmer's Sad. leaping from the nest. Do you want me to tell you a funny joke really quick? Uh, absolutely. I, I, I would love that. I, I want nothing more. A woman... She comes across this scene where she sees her minivan in an accident, and she knows that her family had left previous, and she was in another car. She came up on the accident and sees this scene and rushes to the minivan that it's all just mangled, and the police is like, ma'am, sorry, this is a crime scene, can't come over, can't come over here. And she, she's like, that's my that's my minivan. I just need to know, is my family all right? 
And the the officer doesn't say a word. He just goes over and scrapes off two of the little stick people on the back window and says, I'm just going to say you're not going to need those anymore. <laughs> okay, I kind of like that one. Thanks. That was worth it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even... <laughs> so Elmer eventually ends up in Lola, Kansas in 1903. He is now 23 years old. This is when he takes up the alias of Cool, Common Collective Frank Curtis. Hmm. Now, it's it's suspected that, that he does this possibly to avoid the anti-Irish sentiment that, that is kind of popular in that area. They, they hated the Irish. I didn't go into looking for why uh, for this, but, but it's kind of a, in order to avoid – that's not really racism, is it? What, what, what kind of ism would that be called? Uh, if uh, well, it's it's xenophobia, maybe. So the people here hated Irish people, and and he and he thinks that Elmer McCurdy is a very Irish. It kind of is. That that is kind of a very Irish name. But so he takes on the the alias of Frank Curtis in order to to kind of free himself from the the Irish name. Now, uh, it's at this time he gets a job at Eagle Corning Works and Plumbing as a plumber. Starts working hard. He's making good money. He's 23 years old now, still an expert plumber. He even joins the volunteer fire department here in Lola, Kansas. He joins the local trade union. Union. He starts taking part in town meetings, going to council meetings. In a very short time, Elmer, Elmer there in Lola becomes a very respected contributing member of the community. He gets into really into like community building, like you know, schools, whatever he can do. He's, he's even seen around town uh, on a couple occasions with the daughter of a prominent figure in the community. He's making a good living, and and he's doing well for the first time in his life, and unfortunately the last time. Mm. However, he's still an alcoholic. He's still hitting the bottle, still getting drunk, and unfortunately one night one night while he's drunk, he's he's out. You know, he's he's had a few too many. He's drinking with a fellow plumber. He lets his buddy know that Frank Curtis isn't actually his name, and he had to change it because he had killed a man in another state in a in a barroom brawl. Now, what I think this is is a drunk early twenty year old running his running his flapper and and trying to get some brag points in. But that's what he says. Sounds like a Kenny Rogers song to me. Yes, it does. Or more like maybe a whole Kenny Rogers album. <laughs> now, this man, the first thing he did when he sold her, so sobered up like a bitch, was running until McCurdy's boss, William Root. William Root confronts McCurdy. McCurdy denies the killing but admits to the name change, and William fires him on the spot in February of 1905. McCurdy was 25 years old at the time. It's terrible. So he's just lost everything, uh, you know, his good job. He's, he's lost his solid standing with the community. And instead of facing all this, Elmer runs away again. The next place he pops up is in Carterville, Missouri, where he is a miner mining for zinc ore. Yeah, not quite sure why we need to bring race into it, but, um, you know. Race? What do you... Oh, is he young? Is it you're saying he's under 18? He's a, he's a minor, like, age-wise, not race, like a minority? Do you think that age is, is a race? Uh, like, six years old or a race? Seven years... I was talking about miners, the people that go down into the earth and gather resources. Not oh, miners. Not. Okay. All right. Tell me what a what 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 a ra what is a race op? Race is um, some people are faster than others. And oh Jesus! So Elmer's working nine hour shifts. He's working six days a week. He's at the bottom of this dark, cold mine. 
he's he, it was really hard work tough even by those cuz those those days everything was hard work right you could take a a Starbucks barista some college boy Starbucks barista and throw him really in any occupation in the late 1800s early 1900s and he's not going to be okay no but we're talking hard work for the late 1800s early 1900s this is mm. Backbreaking work. Now he was what was called a mucker. <laughs> Got things I could say about that too, but I feel like maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> so I'll just keep my mouth shut. Mm. He was a real mucker, this Elmer. Now that what that meant is he had to shovel load upon load upon load of pure zinc ore into buckets over and over and over. Like I said, while standing in frigid ankle deep water, down in the darkness, and breathing in harmful zinc dust which would eventually lead to him having a permanent shortness of breath. It was it was what it was was the early signs of silicosis or what they call miners consumption. Uh, Elmer unfortunately only made $2 a day for this backbreaking labor which would equal today $330 a week. Wow. That's not a lot. No. And and like I said I converted that to 2021 standards $330 a week is would that even be minimum wage? No, I believe you actually make. I, I should have done the math on that. You make more than that uh, on unemployment at the moment, like three times as much as that on unemployment. Yeah, and this guy's having to do it in like on like Mars, basically, right? <laughs> yeah, in the dark, <laughs> in the dark. Yeah. yeah, for nine hours a day, six days a week. Jeez. Now, unfortunately, most of this check went to booze. Still boozing it up, and on November of 1907, Elmer says, "Fuck this." And joins the U.S. Army. He's 27 years old at the time. Used the same swear words back then, it seems. Yeah. He ends up in Company E, 3rd Infantry, and was stationed at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Now, McCurdy becomes skilled in demolitions uh, and blowing things up with nitroglycerin, but his, his main job is as a machine gunner. I kind of – I guess I have that in common. I mean, that's that was my job in the Marine Corps, so. Nitroglycerin? Uh, no, I've never seen nitroglycerin in my entire life. I don't even know if they still use that shit. Oh yeah, all all the like women's facial products isn't that nitroglycerin? Like, so he probably had really good looking skin. Did you have good looking skin in the military when you were a nitroglycerin sh- machiner, machinery mechanic? I don't even know what. What? I just was asking if you had beautifuler skin than you have now. Because you have really beautiful skin, but I didn't know if you had beautifuler skin. Uh, maybe that's something you don't talk about. Maybe you know. Maybe that's a hard time in your life. It's just something I never thought about. Oh. Well, the only reason I bring oh, – oh, God. The only reason I bring up that he was in a machine gun section is because it is uh, very important here in, a mo- here in a moment. And And the only reason I bring up that I was in a machine gun section – uh, while I was in the Marine Corps is, is also important because it's going to come into play here in a moment. Now, the whole time that that Elmer was in the military, he he never got in trouble. He he basically becomes invisible between November of 1907 when he joins the army and November 7th of 1910 when he when he gets honorably discharged. He serves his time, gets his walking papers, and and leaves. He, hmm. Just very forgettable. Not a bad soldier. Not a great soldier. Just present and accounted mm-hmm. for okay now about a week after elmer gets gets out he contacts his buddy walter shoprey who's still active duty still in the army and uh he asked him to come and visit him you know fill out the packets i don't know how they did it back then fill out fill out the paperwork leave request come out here and visit me now walter gets approved for a two-week furlough 
where he puts down that he was going to visit relatives, comes out and visits Elmer. On November 19th, 1910, he was only out of the Army for 12 days, Elmer was. Just 12 days after getting discharged, Elmer and Walter are, are stopped late one night while on foot, and they're carrying a huge bag. They're basically trying to drag it. It's heavy. It's huge. And they just look suspicious. It's late at night. So the police officers, they stop them. Mm. I'm guessing I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was zinc from his mining no. days. No. 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 You, nah. you would have fallen off of that limb. Mm. In the bag, officers discover a force screw, a door jimmy, assorted drills, hacksaws, cold chisels, a nitroglycerin funnel, a black powder funnel, and black powder. I believe all of those are British euphemisms for genitalia. <laughs> Every single thing you just said. Well, they're also just things that you use to break into shit. Like I said, genitalia. <laughs> but that little tool set there, you can get into anything. Like, yeah. honestly, anything. It's just all common tools of robbery and safe busting. I've seen some British guys pick some pretty impressive locks with their genitalia. <laughs> so, where? Oh, you know what they say about the military? No. What do they say? <laughs> Don't look now. I think it's what, how it goes. Don't look now. <laughs> okay. Officer. Now, both were sent to jail on felony charges, and were both, fa- both were facing two to ten years. On November 23rd, 1910, their court proceedings start, and Elmer and uh, – I don't know if Elmer and, and Walter had discussed this. Uh, obviously, they probably had in the, in, the, in the nights leading up to their court case. They say that, that all that stuff they had in that bag wasn't for breaking into safes. It wasn't for breaking into houses. It wasn't for breaking into Model Ts. I don't even know if Model Ts were – t- when did Model Ts come out? Nin- early 1900s. 1908. So, yeah, they were, they, were, they were starting to become very popular at that point. Yeah. Did Model Ts have, like, glove boxes and head units in them? Yep. Going to say yes. So they had all this stuff. They could break into these Model Ts, still iPods, you know, whatever was in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. They could. So they say, no, everything in this bag, it's not for breaking into stuff. We're designing a special tripod for the machine guns that we used in the military that can be fired with the gunner's foot and it doesn't have to be fired with the hands now hmm. why you would ever want to design this unless you've you've lost both your arms and you're wanting to fight to the death like you're just getting overrun you know it's over you've got one good 3 or 400 round belt fastened to that gun and all you've got's left is your feet that's the only situation i can think of where you need a tripod that allows you to fire the gun without arms. I believe that you just invented a very necessary thing so that we can incorporate more handicapped people into machine gunnery. Thank you <laughs> for your service, Kent. You're welcome. Now, for those confused about uh, what, what we're talking about here, the tripod, much like a camera, is a tripod for, the, for a machine gun to be mounted on, 50 cows. In the military today, they, they mount 50 cows Mark 19s, M240 Bravos on them. Uh, back then, it was 50 cows, and I'm not sure, probably the uh, water-cooled – oh, shit, I just drew a blank. I can't remember what it was called. It's important to note that the that the M3 tripod 
that is used for the 50 cal today is the same tripod that was used back then, and it's remained almost completely unchanged. It's literally the M3 tripod that we use for the 50 cal in, in Afghanistan in 2021 is the exact same one that they used in World War II and World War One. The 50 cal itself hasn't even changed with the exception of the trigger and the uh, the trigger and the safety. The only reason I wanted to bring all that up is so that people understand what it is they're claiming here because this isn't the gun. I, I hear a lot of podcasts talk mm. about they're, they're trying to design a gun that can be fired with the foot. They're not, design, they're not claiming they're designing a gun. They're claiming they're designing the tripod that the gun mounts on for stability. I see. Uh, this makes no sense whatsoever. It's bananas. Now, on the first set of court proceedings – the court doesn't buy it. They're not buying it. And the court is the court case is delayed until Monday, January 30th, 1911. Now, while in jail for these few months, Elmer's befriends another bandit that's locked in there, locked up in there named Walter Jarrett. Um, he was another inmate that really liked the bottle and had high aspirations for for burglary and robbery and just all all things that that are full of sin and and and, and involve straying from from God. What were his thoughts on tripods? Did he have was he pro tripod? What were Walter Jarrett's thoughts on tripods? Yeah, yeah. I mean, did they have? He probably felt very neutral about them. Okay, all right. He probably probably felt very. He probably thought they were okay, but not great. He wasn't in the military, so okay. So he left that to Elmer in his camp. That makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Now, Monday, January thirtieth, nineteen eleven. Elmer McCurdy is able to convince the jurors somehow that all the burglary tools that he had on his person at the time of getting caught were actually for making a machine gun tripod that could be fired with the foot and had nothing to do with burglary. Wow. So he's he's pulling a bag of burglary tools through the middle of the city in the middle of the night (laughs) (laughs) to go make a tripod for a machine gun that could be fired with the feet. That's funny. They release him right then and there. So you're free to go. Go make that tripod thing. <laughs> we want to see this. <laughs> Let us know how it goes, buddy. This is almost dumber than that dude from the Lorax wanting to make a thneed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good joke for the parents out there. So Elmer's released on the spot. There, he talks them. He talks them into his into this bullshit that he's concocted, and and he's released. They say, "Go on, young man. You know, make your tripod." And he doesn't do that, believe it or not. He he doesn't – he was actually – he had that stuff to burglarize. Yeah. He was not making a tripod. <laughs> oh, I didn't, like, throw a curveball at you? No. Just well, for a second I I was convinced, but now that I think about the the tools needed to build a tripod or invent a tripod, no, he's he's a couple short. So he makes his way to Oklahoma, and he ends up in the cabin – Owned by Walter Jarrett's brother, his his newfound buddy in jail. Walter Jarrett, while in there, is like, hey, come out here, join us. You know, we got a little outlaw crew here. And in this cabin, all of the Jarrett brothers live. You got Walter, Glenn, Lee, Buster, Floyd, and Earl Jarrett. Um, they all wanted to be outlaws, and Elmer fit right in. It's kind of like the Young Guns, the plot to Young Guns. Only all these guys have no intention whatsoever of following the law. And they're not they're not out for vengeance either. They just want to rob people and make I believe that whole list of people you mentioned, Walter, let me say Walter, Glenn, Buster, Floyd, and Earl. Yeah. I think and, those and are Lee. all the people and Lee. Those are all the people that landed on the moon at the same time. That's a weird coincidence. John Glenn. 
Walter Reed, Lee Haney, Buster Givens, yeah, Floyd Gerolstenston, and Earl. He didn't have a last name. It was just Earl. But yeah, that was the first crew that landed on the moon. You know, you really had me going there for like a moment. <laughs> I was looking at this, and I was trying to scrape my like, what is the chances? What are the chances of this? This is this is bananas. <laughs> we could just, if that was the case, we could just end the episode right here and be like, mic drop. Look what we figured out. <laughs> So Elmer's living in this cabin with all these degenerates, and this is this becomes Elmer's crew. This is his, this is his crew. This is the guys that that like you. Whenever you're making fun of my crew out there on Mason Lake Road, these are the guys <laughs> that he that he is determined has the right stuff. Yeah, as long as they're good to him, he's not going to eat them. <laughs> oh wait, that's that other guy. Now they start making big plans. They want to be train robbers. That's the plan. And in the spring of 1911, after after weeks of planning, they finally decide they're going to make their move. Now, around midnight, out on a part of the train track in the Osage Hills of Oklahoma, they they start waiting. They're they're laying there in the dark, waiting for a train to come through. They see the lights come up on the train tracks. They get out there. They set a fire on the train tracks. Which I feel like, as a conductor, if I was a conductor and I seen a fire burning on the train tracks, I would be like, oh, that's just somebody that's wanting to rob me. <laughs> exactly, it's, it's pretty big indicator. And I would just keep barreling through. Like, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't stop. Why would they? My goodness, I wouldn't go. Oh, look, a bunch of trees have fallen and cut themselves up onto the track in a neat order, and then combusted. <laughs> exactly, out in the middle of nowhere, where it would be easy to rob me. <laughs> what are the chances? I should stop and investigate. <laughs> For some reason, the train that works, the train stops. The second the train screeches to a stop, all of the all of the crew open fire. They just start lighting the train up with their weapons. After they've established dominance, this is this is like the criminal way of you, you ever seen a dog get over top of another dog and they just like a you ever got a dog, you've got a full grown dog and then you get a puppy and then that other ass the grown dog just keeps getting over top of it and just standing over it. Yeah, that's um you mean like mating? No, not fucking. Oh, I'm talking about Whoa. like when it's trying to establish its dominance, a dog will get over top of another dog and just hold it down almost. They'll just stand over oh, it. That's what Uncle Richie used to do to me. Weird. Hey, cool. you, op, you got molested. <laughs> um, that's <laughs> it's another story. So congratulations. That'll be kicked that up out of the back of your memory that you had forgotten about. Um, you're just you've only got one piece of the puzzle there, and I just yeah. connected the rest of it for you. So. It's weird until you brought up the dogs in my head. Every time I see Uncle Richie or see his name, I I picture a, a paradiddle, which I believe is a long, long, short-haired dog. Oh, creepy. So this is that's their way of establishing dominance. That's their way of molesting this train. They <laughs> they wait for it to stop and then they just light it the hell up with with wet with rounds. Everybody naturally inside hits the ground. That's that was their intention. Now, right off the bat, after they've established control, Walter and Lee Jarrett enter first. They jump aboard and they begin frantically searching for the safe on this train. A young man named H. P. Pinkney, who was the nightmare clerk. 
Now, you know, this is how they how they moved mail back then. It all moved on the track. So all these trains, they had like a mail cart. So H.P. Pinckney, the, the night mail clerk, has locked himself in the safe room on the train. And it doesn't take long for Lee and Walter Jarrett to, their, to force their way in at gunpoint. Mm. Meanwhile, while this is going on, a new member of their crew, a man named Connor, would randomly open fire with a Winchester rifle down the length of the train in the passenger section just to make them keep their heads down. So they're all in the seats, whatever, you know, duck down, and he would just occasionally raise his rifle and shoot around down the length of the train and out the back of the train. That seems unsafe. Now, after Lee and Walter find the safe room, Elmer comes in behind him. Now, now Elmer's role in all this, Elmer's role in everything coming, moving forward in every criminal endeavor, Elmer's role is the explosion guy. He's, he's the one trained in the military in nitroglycerin, right? Mm-hmm. He's their high-speed, their high-speed assault explosions guy in their head. That's what they think they've hired here, right? Yeah. That's never the case when the person's name is Elmer, <laughs> ever. <laughs> Ever. We will soon find out that Elmer is a bumbling fucking idiot. And he didn't know explosives nearly as well as he did machine guns because he starts rigging the safe. They found the safe. He starts rigging the safe to blow the door off. He, he rigs it up. They run outside along with any any crew members. They don't want to kill any of the crew if they don't have to. So they get tell the true crew members, get the hell down. And Elmer lights the fuse, and it goes up the steps and into the cabin. Explosion. <laughs> They're ready. They got their sacks. They're ready to go in and gather gather the money. They run in. It's just blown the inside of the cab all to hell, but the safe <laughs> is sitting there completely un- unscathed in the middle of the room. <laughs> so Elmer's like, shit. <laughs> now, Elmer's been trained to blow bridges, buildings, large objects, right? He's never He's never had to... Put things in on a small scale, so he had no idea how much explosives to use, how much nitroglycerin to use. He plants it a second time up, runs outside, boom! They run in. They're it's taken a long time now. Like this, <laughs> this heist. They don't. They're starting to not look cool anymore. To like everybody that's like, okay, like, <laughs> can you just get the burglary over with already? <laughs> second explosion goes off. They run inside. Safe is unharmed, but the inside of the train is just messed up a little bit more. <laughs> and Elmer's like, oh, I've got egg on my face. This is embarrassing. <laughs> so Elmer's like, well, it ain't going to happen this time. So he, he really doubles down on the amount of explosive that he uses. <laughs> that on sounds- the third charge, it blows the entire side of the train car out. <laughs> So you've got this huge gaping hole in the side of this train car. They run inside. Safe is still unharmed. <laughs> it is. And at this point, they're like, oh, we look like such assholes. They're like <laughs> mocking us, the people that we're trying to rob. One of them was pointing at my bulge a minute ago and laughing. They're like, what is taking them so long? Like, why can't they just climax? You know, there's like gym? one of them that keeps looking at his watch like, I'm, there's no way in hell I'm getting eight hours of sleep tonight. This is fucking taking forever. <laughs> the fourth charge finally blows the door off. Like I said, he has to go in a fourth time. Mm. He he goes even harder on the nitroglycerin, explodes. They run in with their bags. The, the door of the safe is gone. It's flown off, sends it across the train. 
<laughs> out, out the side of the train. They're like, yes, finally. But they look inside, and the $4,000 worth of silver coins are now permanently fused to the inside of the safe <laughs> and melted to the inside of the safe. The inner, the inner, <laughs> they've all been welded by this heat and compression. He did nothing but paint the inside of the safe silver. This is like a 400 pound safe. Uh, they don't have chisels. They don't have anything. They, they realize quickly none of it is salvageable. None of it is salvageable. The loot is ruined. Elmer has blown the loot to bits, melted it, and fused it with something that they can't even carry. <laughs> so what they do is they quickly just start robbing the passengers, who at this point are undoubtedly pissed off. Because i got to imagine also that train's not moving if he blew it up that much. <laughs> like, it's disabled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what they end up getting away with is a couple pocket watches, some coins off passengers, and oh, that's it. That's all. That's it. (laughs) It was (laughs) – and then they disappear into the night on horses, and they also had an escape vehicle that pulled up. Imagine whoever's driving this escape vehicle. Two of them get away on horses. Two of them get in the escape vehicle. They pull up, and this train is just blown to bits. (laughs) It looks like a giant toddler played with it. That's like – and it turns out that Elmer is just a giant toddler. That's everywhere he goes. Anytime he tries to burglarize anything, he just fucking destroys shit and never gets anything. Now, they got a total between all of them, $450 worth of goods. Split four ways, that's about 112 bucks a piece. Oh, wow which amounts to about $3,000 each today. That's not now that's not bad but in comparison to to what it could have been. Yeah, holy cow. If he hadn't uh yeah, just uh fused it all to the safe. That safe's probably so, worth a lot now. <laughs> there's nothing on that. They destroyed the entire train for a couple pocket watches. Anybody got any snacks? We're going to take snacks now. We're at the point where you got string cheese, we're we're taking string cheese and pocket watches. Is that a bottle of water? In the bag. In the bag. In the bag. They're like laying on their stomach like, fucking hate these guys. <laughs> Idiots. It's probably not even a real gun. <laughs> so March 27th, 1911, the gang unfortunately gets in a barroom brawl with each other. They, <laughs> Elmer ends up with a bad knife wound on his wrist, and Walter Jarrett has one on his face. The gang, the gang breaks up. And the only two that stay together are Walter and Elmer. They they stay tight, but the rest of group rest of the crew kind of tells them to fuck off. <laughs> now, meanwhile, the police are closing in on the crew from their last ro- their train. If you want to call it a robbery, I mean, the train that they destroyed. They're probably trying to arrest them for destruction of property and yeah. not burglary. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> they're closing in on them on April 9th, nineteen eleven. Not even a month after the train robbery, the cops show up at the Jarrett cabin to search it. Now, inside inside the cabin, they find nitroglycerin, dynamite, ammunition that matches the caliber of guns used during the robbery, and about two metric tons of incriminating evidence. Beside all this incriminating evidence, they find Elmer McCurdy's discharge papers from the Army, which have basically all the information that you could ever have on somebody on them. We're talking Social Security number, date of birth, everything. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the, they just had a little more detail than we found in his mouth after 80 years of being dead, basically. It's almost the same identification. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, this is like leaving these papers beside all this incriminating evidence is equivalent to like, in 2021, robbing a store and right before you leave, you're like, hold on a minute, and you just pull out your dick and you jerk off all over the counter and get semen everywhere. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, you can use that. By the way, my name is Ken. I live in security number. Here's my semen. Good luck tracking me down by my semen. That's impossible. This is a gas station. This isn't a DNA lab. Here's my face. Pull the mask down and then leave. That's, a, that's pretty much what Elmer McCarty's done here. He jerked off on the scene and then left. Now, all of the gang was yoked up immediately and thrown in jail except for Walter and Elmer. They were there at the time. Like I said, they, they kind of were thrown out of the group. So they, they go on the run. They know that the, that the police are looking for them. Now, Walter headed east to Missouri while Elmer got a horse and headed west. And uh, Elmer ends up in Pawhuska, Oklahoma. Now, it's here where he gets a job for a construction company digging ditches for roads. He's still boozing it up. And this is a pretty... Pretty boring time for Elmer because it's during this time that he's just boozing, digging ditches. But he ends up befriending two dumbasses named Amos Hayes and Elijah Higgins. <laughs> now, these are two people that he would just get shit-faced with. And I think Amos Hayes and Elijah Higgins had had dreams of, of outlawry, too. Because while in a bar one night, they decide they need to make some money. And they want to do it illegally. Dun, dun, dun. Now, this time, Elmer's like... I had bad luck with the train the first time. This time, let's knock up a bank. We can do a bank. It, it doesn't move. <laughs> There's nobody inside it. So on September 21st, 1911, at around midnight, the Citizens State Bank in Pawhuska, Oklahoma, gets its cherry popped. Kind of. <laughs> sort of. It really just gets popped. <laughs> Big time. Now, this is like the Three Stooges. You've got Elmer, you've got Amos, and you've got Elijah. The Three Stooges are robbing this bank. They sneak up at midnight with a pickaxe, and they take turns pickaxing at the wall in the alley of the bank. They start chipping away with this pickaxe. They work for two hours until two in the morning, pickaxing away at this wall till they finally make a hole big enough to where each of them can, can kind of wiggle their way into the inside of the bank. Now, once inside, Elmer and Amos go inside. Elijah Higgins stays outside as a watch. They put him on watch. He's on lookout. So Amos and Elmer are inside, and this is when Elmer, the demolitions expert, sets the charge on the bank vault. Now you know these thousand-pound doors. Mm-hmm. Remember when he couldn't? Remember when he couldn't accurately blow off a small safe door on a on a knee-high safe <laughs> on a train? He's in yeah. a bank now. His next step is a vault door. Mm-hmm. So Elmer overestimates way too much, and me saying way too much. Even with the tone and pitch that I used, <laughs> way too much. That's not explaining how much he overestimates. Because <laughs> when he they go outside, they shimmy back out the hole, they run the fuse out, they light it, they stand back. It blows this thousand-pound vault door clear across the bank. Oh. <laughs> but it doesn't like, according to, to the book that I read... It doesn't blow the door in like a, a rolling fashion or like slide it across the floor. This door comes out of the wall as if it's strapped to the front of a train <laughs> and just <laughs> like like in like how the Hulk would push a door across the room kind of ding. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yes. 
It demolishes the entire bank, the interior of the bank. Oh, my gosh. Rips all of their furniture, everything, the counters, tears this 1,000-pound vault door, goes the length of the bank, and destroys the bank, and then hits the wall on the other side and and rips the wall all to pieces. (laughs) The explosion is so loud. This is at 2 o'clock in the morning in the middle of a town. The explosion is so loud that it blows the windows out of the buildings across the street. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Over, way overestimated. (laughs) Now, I I like to imagine Elmer, Elijah, and Amos crouched down outside. Now, this explosion goes off so loud it almost kills all three of them, right? The the concussion (laughs) of it almost kills. There's dogs barking like lights are coming on all over the street. I like to imagine Elmer Elmer looks at Elijah and, and, and Amos and they're like and he goes you reckon anybody heard that? <laughs> Hope nobody heard that. <laughs> Their hair's all fucked up. Yeah. Elijah's like what? Now the second the blast goes off Higgins is like I'm out bro. This oh, is it. Man. Everybody within a 10 mile radius just woke up. I'm out. Higgins runs off. Elmer and Amos are like, no, we're so close now. There's the vault. The door is gone. They shimmy back in through the hole, only to discover that there's a second vault door, and they haven't gotten anywhere. No. (laughs) (laughs) Realizing that the police are probably on their way and they are out of time, they just steal what they can out of the cash registers that have been blown to bits by this 1,000-pound vault door, and then they, they run off into the dark. They get away with $150 that they oh. ended up dividing between the three of them, which equaled $50 a piece or $1,300 each today. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and causing God knows how much money's worth of damage. Man, this guy's not good at this. <laughs> Probably caused $250,000 worth of damage to the neighborhood. jeez. Oh, <laughs> they got away with 50 bucks. They didn't even get in the vault. That's amazing. So the trio heads south with the loot. With the with the with the booty, and uh, they make it they make it overnight. They go all night. They arrive at the Kansas state line, and it's here that they break up and go their separate ways. Now Higgins gives Elmer a lead on a place that he could stay. A friend of Higgins is by the name of Charles Rivard. Elmer says, "All right, I'll go stay there. I'll go talk to him." Elmer rides all through the what's left of the night and reaches Charles's ranch, Charles Rivard's ranch, at the break of dawn. At the break of dawn, Elmer knocks on Charles's door and asks if he can if he can, you know, have a place to lay his head. Charles goes, "Sure, stranger. There's a hay shed out there. You're welcome to stay in the hay shed as long as you want." Elmer uh, accepts this offer and asks if he's got any whiskey. Charles gives him a more than copious amounts of whiskey and sends him to the hay shed. This is where Elmer spends the rest of September where he lays in the hay shed getting shit-faced on whiskey and eating smoked pork and yelling at passerbyers like an absolute nutcase. <laughs> Sounds fun. That's how he spends the rest of September, just drinking whiskey. He's drunk the rest of September. He's eating nothing but smoked pork, and people will walk by. Some guy's just minding his own business, like, oh, it's going to be he's got flowers for his honey. <laughs> and he just, from this hole in this hay shed, he hears, hey. hey. My guy turns around and looks, and Elmer's like, Bitch. <laughs> okay. That guy always calls me a bitch. I hate that guy. His face is always covered in smoked pork. 
But it is it is noted that Elmer starts harassing people that go by his shed. He's like a bridge troll. <laughs> and they're eating smoked pork and whiskey and yelling at people that are minding their own damn business. Now, the word starts spreading around, and it's even reported in the paper that a train will soon be passing through that will be carrying $400,000 in cash, which equals $11 million. Today. Wow. So this is the big one. Yeah. And they even post the train's schedule in the paper. <laughs> so not only do they allow, alert, alert the town, hey, there's $11 million worth of money. It's $400,000, but $11 million today. $400,000 in money. By the way, here's the schedule. <laughs> here's where it will be and when for every leg of the train. And here's the safe combination to the safe, just in case. With the bud, there's a sign on it that says, don't rob us. Why would they do this? Seriously. Unless unless maybe maybe there was someone on the train that was famous, like, you know, as he stops or they stop, you know, maybe like a politician or that's weird. There was know. no politicians, there was no any it was payment for the Oh, I can't remember. I, I knew it. I didn't write it down because I didn't feel like it was important enough to mention, but it was for a it was a payment for something big and important. Huh. But Anyways, it's time for Larry, Curly, and Moe to get together again for one last <laughs> ride of embarrassment. They would this time be joined by a fourth man, though, and that guy's name was Dave Sears. Now, Dave Sears was known as a serious outlaw. Like, this guy this guy apparently wasn't a joke, but he isn't aware of the other three. Really, he doesn't know that he's working with three total dipshits. <laughs> so it's kind of like Pierce Brosnan Working with Larry the Cable Guy, Jeff Foxworthy, and Bill Ingvall. <laughs> yeah. He's outclassed them just a bit. Yeah. <laughs> now, late on the night of October 4th, 1911, they make their move. It's time for the train to come rolling through. It's raining this night heavily. And the the four men, they, they do the same thing that, that Elmer did the first time around on the first train heist. They show up in this desolate location out in the middle of nowhere where there's no police, no businesses. It's out in the woods. And on the tracks, they, they wait. They wait. They're all on horseback this time. And, and they're preparing when the train comes earlier than they were expecting. It's ahead of schedule. And they quickly gather a bunch of wood and light a fire on the tracks, just like they did the first time. <laughs> now, once again, for some reason, the conductor... Is like, oh no, the woods have lit a fire on the tracks. <laughs> he stops. It's raining, by the way, mind you. Raining, pouring down the rain. You know what that guy said, because if you're going to stop at all, you know he got out and he said, what in the Sam hell? That's, that's what he said. And then he got, how you reckon this happened? How you reckon? <laughs> what in the Sam hell? So he screeches to a stop and they use the old lighter up boys. And they just open fire on the train, getting everybody's head down, just like they did the first time. Mm -hmm. They force entry, just like they did the first time, quickly gain control of the train, just like they did the first time, and start looking for the safe, just like they did the first time. Now, they keep occasionally firing shots just to keep everybody's head down and eventually find the mail room. And they end up getting lucky and not having to use the nitroglycerin that Elmer had bought because the mail clerk is like, I'll open the safe for you. Just don't blow this train to bits. <laughs> we heard about you Just guys. Open it. Just let me open it. Wow. You're going to get in anyway, and there's no use in just making a crater here on the tracks just to ruin everything that's inside of it. Uh. So the mail clerk opens the safe for them and reveals 
that there isn't a single dollar inside of it. There's nothing inside of it. They had robbed the wrong train. No. <laughs> <laughs> what? Jeez. How stupid are these guys? Oh, my gosh. The train they were looking for was still uh, over an hour away down the tracks, oh. not even close to the location yet. But the gig is up. You can't just go, oh, shit. Well, you guys go on your way. Well, we'll catch the next one. They even had the schedule. How can you screw that up? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> oh. And they had watches because that's all they stole from the first train. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is just getting better and dumber. Oh, it's funny. So, uh, once again, they start freaking out and frantically trying to take what they can from the passengers. Elmer starts flipping all the cushions, all the cushions in the passenger section of the train. In his, in his like frantic motions, though, he forgets one cushion. He doesn't find anything under these cushions. The one cushion doesn't flip over. A man had shoved $250 underneath it ah. to hide from the burglars. <laughs> so he missed that. <laughs> Which would have been, mind you, the biggest part of the haul that they, if he would have found it. That would have been by far. The biggest part of the haul. Yeah, yeah. Well, it would have been. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, un- but he didn't find it because that was the one that old Elmer didn't turn oh over. Oh my gosh, that guy! What's wrong with this guy's luck? He's so terrible <laughs> at his job. In one cabin, they discover a few jugs of whiskey and several kegs of beer, and probably frustrated and all of them alcoholics. They don't get in any hurry. They kind of put their guns down, pop the top on the kegs, and start getting drunk. <laughs> Inside the train, like one does, mm-hmm. like you would. After getting good and buzzed and drinking for a minute, you know that the the crew of this train are probably like, "Is this, is this happening?" <laughs> what are the chances that that one of the passengers on the train was on the first train as well? And he's like, "Oh, these fucking guys, dude! <laughs> these guys again! Another pocket watch! <laughs> Come on!" <laughs> They're hammered. Hey, hey, I saw Pocket Watch with the same guy's name on on the last train we stole things from. <laughs> Just give them what they, at least they won't destroy the train this time. <laughs> He's walking by and one of them's like, oh, hey, Elmer. Still up to it, huh? <laughs> you, guys, you guys are real accurate in shooting the ceiling, though. It's real good, real good there. Good job. So after getting drunk on the kegs, they steal a watch from a mail clerk, a pistol from a train auditor, and a coat from a conductor. And $46 in cash. They steal a couple jugs of whiskey, and that's the loot. Oh, my goodness. Everything they had taken totaled under $100, split four ways. Ended up with about $25 each, and that's not in pure cash. That's in goods. Jeez. They're not good at this. No. And then they mount their horses and disappear into the hills. It's still raining. This is important. Still raining. Okay. By 4 a.m., a posse had formed to track down the group that had robbed this train, and it's got bloodhounds. But they don't need them because they go to the train and realize, oh, there's like five inches of mud, (laughs) and there are very distinct horse tracks. (laughs) (laughs) So they follow the horse tracks for 10 miles through the woods. That goes straight to the front door of Dave Sears' farm. Oh, my gosh. 
Early the next morning, after going through the woods for 10 miles with these bloodhounds, they arrive at Dave Sears' farm. He's immediately arrested and immediately gives Elmer, Elmer McElroy's name away as one of the bandits. Wow. Now, meanwhile, in town, the Bartlesville Enterprise paper is printing their newspaper where they quote the hall from the robbery as being one of the smallest in history of train <laughs> robbery. One of the, So the paper's just making fun of them. <laughs> Elmer's like, oh, damn it. <laughs> that ain't nothing but a joke. Everybody just making fun of me. all can't do nothing. The newspapers making fun of him, and the cops are now on Elmer's trail. Sears informs them, hey, Elmer's back at the ranch in his, where he's became known for, his shed, his hay shed. <laughs> and he's likely shit-faced because they had been drinking the whole way back there the whiskey that they had stolen from the train. Oh, my gosh. So, so the night before... The night before, Elmer had made his way back to the Revard, Revard Ranch, and he not only does he drink with them on the way back, but he, he gets whenever he gets back to the shed, he starts drinking, and he drinks until he passes out. So Elmer is currently inebriated, and it's early in the morning, and he's passed out in the hay shed. So around 7 a.m., police surround the shed, and they wait until they just wait. A little bit after hot daybreak, Sheriff Friez screams for Elmer to come out with your hands up and surrender. Now, Elmer is very hungover, probably still a little drunk. He's probably got a splitting headache. He just yells back a slur of cuss words. <laughs> That's all he can get. Hey, fuckers! <laughs> Shithead bitch. Fuckers. <laughs> yells. They just say that he just yells cuss words oh. for a very long time. Now... I I would imagine you've never had a hangover, have you? No, no. If no, I've been on the hang glider. I would compare it to imagine that you're superhuman and you're not capable of death, but you are capable of pain and getting hurt. And then imagine you go out onto the interstate and just kind of hang your head out into the interstate and wait for a semi trailer to hit you in the face. That's the kind of headache that you have when you have a hangover. It's Uh. god awful. And on top of that, you get the bubble guts, you know, where if you move yeah. too fast, you feel like you're going to vomit. Oh, that's that's fun. And everything just hurts. That's a hangover. Okay. That's what a hangover feels like. I've had a lot of unfortunate – I've been in a lot of unfortunate situations hungover. I once woke up in the back of a Chevy Cavalier <laughs> in the middle of summer. Oh, no. Way back in the woods. And by the back of a Chevy Cavalier, I mean in the trunk. Why were you there? How did that happen? Okay, I'll tell the story. So we went to a party way out in the woods once. It was like a bonfire party way out in the woods. And uh, I got probably drunk quicker than I should have. At like 2 in the morning, everybody else is still partying. I crawl into my girlfriend's car, lay down the back seats because you know how – Yeah. Like in a Cavalier, you can – the back – there's not a divider between the the trunk and the inside of the cab. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I, my feet are hanging out into the cab, and my head and shoulders and everything are in the trunk. <laughs> and I go to sleep. And my girlfriend lost me. She didn't know where I was. So she just leaves with one of her girlfriends. And then everybody else also leaves. And and my ex now, she was my girlfriend at the time, she's like, oh, I'll, I'll just come get my car tomorrow. Oh, no. <laughs> so I wake up probably like noon, and it's 150,000 degrees <laughs> in this Chevy Cavalier. It's so hot. It's like being in a sauna. <laughs> I am soaking wet with sweat, just soak, literally soaking wet. My head is splitting down the middle, and I, I feel like I'm going to vomit. 
I very weakly, with shaky elbows and knees, crawl out into the cab and and like kick open the door of this Cavalier and and fall out of it like this car is just giving birth to me <laughs> out under the leaves in the woods. It's the middle of summer. It's probably a hundred degrees outside, oh. and I just lay there like. Remember when Jim Carrey comes out of that? Rhinoceros and Ace Ventura Part Two. <laughs> yes. when he comes out of its ass, that's how I exited this Cavalier. <laughs> I want to. I want to see this happen. I want to see it. And I remember like searching the campfire site for just some kind of water. My mouth was dry, and I was stuck out there. My ex had her keys; she had taken them with her. So I had no way to get out of this predicament. So I was just looking oh, for water God. bottles, anything I could find, soda, just trying to hydrate. And I ended up having to wait until she came and got her car like three hours later. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. Sounds like a pretty typical experience at Burning Man or something. <laughs> yes. But that is still not as bad as waking up to cops wanting to kill you and having to get in a gunfight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is what Elmer here experienced. Mm. He he wakes up and the cops are like, "We reckon reckon it's time to kill you, Elmer." Uh. Elmer is the first one. Now there are three separate stories, but I'm going with the one here that everyone has determined is most likely to have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that Elmer opens fire first through the slots on the boards and through the slots in the boards in the shed. And that's when a gunfight breaks out that lasts for an hour, about an hour. So they they take turns trading rounds. Elmer's yelling, yelling slurs the entire time and cuss words, and then eventually, a couple shots pop off from the from the law side, and everything goes quiet. The cops wait, then they go inside. Now Elmer was shooting from an elevated position in the hayloft. One of the officers starts climbing the ladder. He takes off his cowboy hat, puts it on the end of his rifle, and pokes it up over to wait to see if somebody would shoot it. Nothing happens. Huh. They get into the loft and they find Elmer McCurdy. Dead from a gunshot wound to the chest, and that's that. That's the end. That's that's the end of Elmer. Of Elmer McCurdy's life. Wow. Of his life. Uh. Now I want to point out something. A lot of podcasts, oh, even like YouTube videos, they 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 try to classify Elmer as like an old west outlaw, right? Like an old gunslinger. He was none none of these things. None of these. He wasn't a gunslinger. He never killed anybody, to our knowledge. Mm-hmm. He was an awful outlaw because if you totaled up all of the loot that he ever made in all of his burglaries, it's it's, it's not even a thousand dollars. It's like it's like a coat and a watch and eleven dollars <laughs> and two million dollars worth of damage. Yeah, I was gonna say he sure destroyed a lot of stuff. Oh man, idiot! Maybe a half empty Pepsi. <laughs> Now, he does not qualify as an Old West outlaw because the Old West era ended in 1895. Elmer McCurdy died in 1911. Mm. This all happened in 1911. This is just a, a, I don't know what you would call him, but he's not what people try to, he was just a, a dumbass that went and got killed by the cops. And that's really it. That's it. That's all that he was. You know what would be a great series of historical stories would be it's it's people that are too late to the party 
Like, he wanted to be an Old West outlaw, but he's 20 years late. and Or, yes. or the guy that, like, is determined to master breakdancing, but it's 1993. You know, like, those yeah. people would be <laughs> awesome to, like, just, why are you this way, man? <laughs> If this was if Elmer McCarty lived in 2021, he would right now be getting really into rollerblading. <laughs> like, exactly. You go yeah. check up shredding, bro. He's just rollerblading all over the place. He'd be like, he'd be like, have you seen these pogs? I got these new pogs. You guys heard of pogs? You guys heard of pogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jesse James, if he was still alive at this time, as like ED. <laughs> Like he's oh, shitting himself. Exactly. He's he's wearing goat skin to pins. <laughs> oh. Now, like I said, this this is Elmer meets his end in 1911. Now that day, his body is taken by Paul Huska, U.S. Marshal Deputy Stringer Fenton, who then turns it over to Paul Huska Funeral Director Joseph L. Johnson. Now Joseph Johnson performs the autopsy and then cleans and embalms the body. However, nobody shows up to claim it. So he holds on to the corpse in lieu of payment for services performed. So he's kind of holding this body hostage until somebody will pay him for the work that he's done to it. But everybody that knows Elmer McCurdy is is either dead or has long forgotten about him. There uh-huh. is no next of kin. Right. There is nobody. Now, it's important to note that this is illegal in Oklahoma at the time, but because McCurdy was a criminal, uh, nobody really cared. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, d- do whatever you want to with him. Uh, the, the rules were loose when it came to criminals and their corpses, right? Yeah. It's also around this time, you know, when, when the word gets out that McCurdy's been killed, his criminal record starts becoming dramatically exaggerated in newspapers all across the state. And he, he becomes – because newspapers today would never do that, right? They would never exaggerate oh, no. or, or lie no. about things. Never. To sensationalize a story. No, we're beyond that. He, he becomes somewhat famous as an outlaw. Even though he was just an idiot. <laughs> so he becomes the Oklahoma outlaw. After a few days, nobody shows up to claim the body. Uh, but people start showing up at Johnson's funeral home to, to view the dead outlaw, now celebrity. And Johnson sees a business opportunity here. He's like, hey, I did work on you, Elmer. Nobody's paid for it. You've got a debt to pay. And get out there and shake that ass. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Put you on the dance floor, yeah. Elmer. You're my new Pinocchio. So Johnson props Elmer up in the corner and starts charging a nickel per person to see the dead Oklahoma outlaw. Wow. Thousands come in view. Thousands. Johnson also uh, persuade, like he he pressures them. He, you know, you put the nickel in his mouth. That's how you pay. You put it in his mouth, and he installed a tube. That would go from the throat down to the asshole, and at the end of the day, he could just spread his ass cheeks, and all the nickels no. would fall out of his asshole into a cup. No. Okay, I made that last. Okay. I made that last part up. I may have made that last part up. I was going to say that's impressive engineering right there. I would have left that in the show. I wouldn't have done away with that part. Oh my goodness! He does encourage the visitors to put the nickel in the mouth, but then he just collects them at the end of the night. Mm. Wow. Now, like I said, thousands come and view. Johnson realizing his 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 golden goose here. He opens McCurdy back up and then pumps him full of two hundred times the amount of needed arsenic for an embalming process. Oh, gosh. now this is the reason that the corpse lasts for as long as it does. He's 
he like just pumps this thing like a sponge full of arsenic. Just it's basically just arsenic. That's all this corpse <laughs> is. Now this way he doesn't have to worry about it rotting. He can hold on to it for as long as he can he can he can ride this thing till the wheels fall off now. Because mm-hmm. it ain't going anywhere. He also redresses the corpse in its original bandit clothes with its bullet holes. And like I said, he props it up in the corner. Now, sideshow owners and carnies start showing up wanting to buy the corpse. And Johnson repetitively says no. There's more money in taking nickels over time than one big payment. Johnson also has children that run around there in the funeral home. And his children's favorite favorite joke is to put Elmer in roller skates and skate him around the funeral home to scare their friends. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And that part I did not make up. It makes you wonder, like, I wonder if anyone got, like, either a contact high or got sick from just touching him with all that arsenic, you know? I did read that he was loaded with such high levels of arsenic that his corpse was toxic to handle 65 years later. Oh, my goodness. When he's discovered. Wow. Meanwhile, children have him in roller skates Pushing this corpse around the funeral home, just being kids. Kids are silly. Kids are silly. But business is good. (laughs) Business is booming. Now it's October 1916, and Elmer's body has been on display in Johnson's funeral home for five years. And it's around this time that 45 miles away in Arkansas City, Kansas, a carnival called the Great Patterson Carnival Show is in full swing. Sounds great. What do you think is going to happen, Op? Oh, gosh. I'm going to guess that they forget his roller skates and nobody buys a ticket. October 6, 1916. Two very well-dressed dapper men hop off a train in Paul Huska, and they claim that their names are Aver and Wayne McCurdy. Now, they also claim they're long-lost brothers of Elmer, and they're there to take his body home upon the dying wishes of Elmer's mother. Now, we already know Elmer's mother, Sadie, is dead. Yeah. She's been dead for quite a while at this point. But before going to the funeral home, they go to the sheriff's office and kind of smooth talk their way into convincing the sheriff that their story is true and, and this body belongs with them. So they then show up with, with the sheriff's permission at the Johnson funeral home. And at this point, Joseph Johnson can't really do anything. It's it's out of his hands. He's forced to turn over the corpse to these two strangers on October 7th, 1916. Surprise to nobody, these two men were not of any relation to Elmer. In reality, they were Charles and James Patterson, and James was the owner of the carnival that was running in Arkansas City 45 miles away. Uh. <laughs> so they've just kind of stolen the gold, this golden goose of their own. And Elmer next pops up in West Texas as an exhibit at the traveling Great Patterson Carnival. He's shown as the Oklahoma outlaw. And he does this. He travels these, the roads for six years with this carnival all over the United States. Over 6,000 miles he traveled and is viewed by tens of thousands of people in this period of time. So for six years, he's with the Great Patterson Carnival. In 1922, while the carnival is in eastern Washington state, a man named Louis Sonny acquires the body of Elmer after it was provided for a collateral on a loan that wasn't repaid by one of the carnies. Now, I don't know what kind of loan company. I was just going to say. So, what were you saying? Well, at this point, I mean, do these people know – they they know they're working with a real body, right? They they like these people know it's a yes, real body. Yes, at this point, it's still it's still common knowledge that okay. it's a, that it's a real body. All right, this. okay. That's what I was getting ready to say. I, I couldn't go into a pawn shop or anywhere that any of these sketchy loan sharks right and be like, "Listen, I need five hundred bucks 
I've got a corpse out here in the car. It blows my mind. The amount of people that go, yeah, that'll work. Just bring that corpse in here. Exactly. That's worth five hundred bucks. So, Still got all the fingers. Oh, there's a little so, dick. Yeah. Got, uh, okay. Yeah. Just lay it back there. He still. They every time they they shake him, he he makes change noises of the, the knickles that Joseph Johnson couldn't get out of his gut. Grandma's <laughs> Sounds like purse. A, like your grandma's little purse. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So this is how. This is how Louise Sonny acquires Elmer's body. And Louise just so happens to, to run a traveling museum called Louise Sonny's Wax Museum of Crime. Now, Lois was kind of a fat, loudmouth, lying asshole who would dress in a Western outfit and shout about Elmer McCurdy, the Oklahoma outlaw. He would lie about crimes that he hadn't even committed and shout things like, he'd rather spit in your face and shooting you dead than look you in the eye. <laughs> He made up tales of gambling and murder and whoring and drugs and just all of it was bullshit. Uh, every bit of it was bullshit. One of Lois's favorite things to do to patrons that would join his that would come into his little museum was and I don't know how this was legal, even he even here in the in the nineteen twenties, he would make them put on this this what he called what he said was a bulletproof jacket for their safety. But what they didn't know, what these patrons didn't know is he had loaded this this jacket with Blanks, explosive blanks. And then he had a revolver that had blanks uh-huh. in it, and he would shoot at them with these blank slugs <laughs> that were somehow I, – I, I never – I couldn't find in my research how they set them off, but they would time it with his – with the explosion of his pistol that these blanks that these poor bastards were wearing that they thought were just as like a prop uh-huh. would explode on their chest and scare the shit out of them. <laughs> We see that in in at the art institute. We would because uh, we had access to all like the effect uh, special effects stuff. So we'd always make like squibs, which are like blood packets. Squibs, yeah. yeah. We yeah. do that all the time. Scare people. That's fun. I also wasted a lot of clothing that way. Yeah. But you knew they were there, right? Good point. Good point. That's the difference here. Yeah. <laughs> you're not a uh, you're not an eighty three year old man with heart problems. <laughs> That thinks he's wearing this as a fun time. We're going to go look at the wax outlaws, and it'll be a good time. And the next thing you know, some fat asshole in a cowboy hat is shooting at you with a revolver, and your chest is exploding for no reason. You knew it was – you signed up for the squib. These people didn't sign up. That's the difference here. Yeah, Yeah, good point. Good point. Now, McCurdy travels with this shit show for another five years on the road before he decides – he wants to he wants to find a permanent residence and he does so in 1927 when he settles down in Los Angeles at 524 South Main Street. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, isn't that where Nightmare on Elm Nightmare on McCurdy? No, not not even remotely. If you remember the the ticket that was in Oh, that was in <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> I thought we were trying to connect some amazing, you know, Hollywood facts here, but no, it's if, the ticket in his mouth. That's right. Okay, yeah, I'm following. If you remember in 1976, uh, upon his second autopsy, they discover a ticket in his mouth that says Louise Sonny's Wax Museum of Crime. Right. And this is likely when that ticket was placed in his mouth in 1927. So that ticket had been there 49 years by the time they pulled it out of his mouth in 1976. Wow. This is, this is around the time that, that Louis Sonny makes a permanent residence in Los Angeles for his, his Louis Sonny's Wax Museum of Crime 
And in one room, he has wax. And tell me what sense this makes. On, on, in one room, on one side, he has wax outlaws. You know, Jesse James, mm-hmm. uh, Billy the Kid, the, those, those Western outlaws. On the other side, staring them down, staring the outlaws down, are American presidents. What? Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> um, George Washington. <laughs> the contrast of no freedoms, sense. I guess. Something like that. That's weird. Something, yeah. <laughs> but in the back room, all his own, uh, because he was kind of the golden goose of this of this museum, is Elmer McCurdy. And like I said, it's around this time that likely some little 16-year-old punk on a date with his girlfriend thought it would be funny to, to slip a ticket stub or two into McCurdy's mouth where it would be discovered 49 years later. <laughs> Thank God, yeah. actually. It's a good thing he did this. Well, yeah. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have known. He was, thought he was just being snarky, you know? Probably wooed that girl that way. Help solve a help solve a, a a corpse case. You know, probably after he was already dead. Yeah. No idea. Uh-uh. Just just a little joke that he did on a whim, and then forgot about would be huge. Uh, you know, almost fifty years He's later. A hero. Now, in nineteen twenty eight, a fast talking jackass by the name of Charles C. Pyle was organizing the nineteen twenty eight transcontinental foot race. At this point and to today, it was and is the longest race, the longest foot race in history. It was to start in L.A. and end in New York City at Madison Square Garden, a total of 3,400 miles. Now, you're probably wondering, what the hell does this have to do with Elmer McCurdy? Now, the plan was along this, along the way, these runners and spectators were to spend the night in predetermined cities and while there, they would set up exhibits, mm. kind of like a mini, fa- a traveling mini fair to follow these runners through the through the country. And this is how Elmer McCurdy comes becomes a part of this because uh, Louis Sonny sees an opportunity to make some money here, and sends his son Edward on this trip to follow these runners. So Edward is sent to set up Elmer as a single exhibit in these towns as they follow these runners along the transcontinental foot race. <laughs> And to let you know what kind of sleaze ball that Charles C. Pyle was, the guy that that invented and and made this transcontinental foot race, he is by all accounts a snake. And he would go to these towns, and he would be like, "I've got you know the town next up, the town next door is offering this amount of money uh-huh. to have us go through." Yeah, it. yeah. So, and Leverage. he would just be like, "Whoever's got the most money is who we're going through." Hmm. Man. Man, you know what's ironic about all of this is that he made so little money in life, but he made so much other people money in death. <laughs> oh, <laughs> made people rich. Yeah. He made people rich. Dude, it's crazy. The race was an absolute shit show. Charles Powell hadn't properly set up rations and water and food. And he hadn't properly planned anything. This is like, imagine, have you ever been to a, you ever stopped at a gas station out in the middle of nowhere? And you're like, how does this place even stay in business? And there's like a a 50-year-old man sitting in there that's grouchy holding a floss water. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you can tell that this guy has a criminal record at the <laughs> register. It's like hiring that guy to organize a transcontinental foot race. That's That's what this is. <laughs> Everything starts falling apart relatively quickly. <laughs> wow. But anyways, when they go through Oklahoma, Edward Sonny tucks Elmer away because he, he they still know that he's from Oklahoma. 
And he tucks Elmer away for the entire time that they're going through Oklahoma for fear that a family member of McCurdy or, or an acquaintance would, would find him. However, Bob Fenton, the officer that they had determined had killed Elmer McCurdy 17 years earlier, gets wind that Elmer's corpse is traveling with this foot race through Oklahoma. Now, Bob Fenton had been – how they determined Bob Fenton had killed him was the caliber of bullet. Uh, because if you remember, they find the – they find the gas check, but not the round. They had determined that the round had been taken out in the first autopsy. Right, 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 right. So Bob Fenton's like, I want to go face this asshole one more time. Why <laughs> you would want to see the rotting corpse of the man that you had killed 17 years earlier is baffling to me. That's awesome. But he he shows up and hunts down Edward Sonny. And Edward's like, yeah, I'll show him to you. So, so Bob kind of looks... Looks Elmer in the face one more time, I guess, and nods his head and walks off. He's like, "Yep, that's it, some that's bitch. It, some ba- I'm still putting, dead. I see. Put nickel in his mouth." <laughs> this really did interest me, like from a psychological point of view. Why? Why would you? Yeah, I don't really. I, I just I can't. Mean, come you're up the with one that killed him. That's pretty much closure. Like, I don't know why you'd go back unless you're just like some sick humor. And at this point, Elmer's doesn't look – he's seen better days. Yeah. Like he's starting to shrivel. He's shrunken quite a bit. His hair is falling out. Yeah. His wiener is small. You know, I just – I can't – I don't understand this. But regardless, Bob shows up, looks at the body, gets whatever he went went for and leaves, and that was that. The The race ends up making it across the United States somehow despite all of its all of its shortcomings in Madison Square Garden to a crowd of nobody mm. and these poor runners that had put their bodies through absolute torture for months show up in New York to to nothing. And That's they sad. show up to Madison Square Garden to empty to an empty stadium where they just kind of are like, All right, well congratulations. You know, here's your <laughs> Hey, everybody, take a, everybody go ahead and take a, a, a string cheese on your way out, and uh, yep, door's right there. So after they, they get their prize money to, to a crowd of nobody, Elmer once again leaves with Edward, who is Louise's son, and goes on the road for a few more years as a sideshow attraction. Now, Elmer next pops up in the early 1930s. Turns out that Louise Sonny's Wax Museum of Crime is beginning to fail. And what's happening at this point in time is exploitation films are becoming popular. Op, do you want to define what an exploitation film is? Yeah, yeah. A, lo- a lot of exploitation, like back in the day, a lot of exploitation films would have fallen in like the B movie category. Like most of the time, it, it wasn't going. It wasn't bound to. You weren't going to have eighty-eight sequels of it, but it was taking advantage of some kind of like trend of the time or some kind of niche or fear. Yeah, fear. Like, uh, yeah, like uh, you know, the satanic panic kind of thing, something like that. Where uh, or lurid content, like you know, there were times in the past generations where like certain levels of pornography were in vogue in public theaters. You know, so exploitation that way, that kind of thing. You know, you got your you got your standards like. Uh, Primrose Path or the Black Gestapo, you know, the standards. Exactly, exactly. And if you remember, this we're in the 1930s now. This is when, when drugs are starting to really take hold and they're starting to scare the nation. Uh, if you remember from our Cecil Hotel episode, this is when Skid Row kind of starts forming there in, in California. 
drugs are really becoming a problem. They're scaring the parents. They're scaring everybody. Nobody really knows. Everybody thinks that that weed is this this injectable drug that you melt down on a spoon and shoot into your veins. Like it's just any drug, any drug, any drug is scary. That they just don't know anything about them. And down the road, Louis Sonny's wax museum is failing. Like I said, but right down the road from his exhibit. A filmmaker named Dwayne Esper was making waves in the film community with exploitation films. And in 1933, Louis Sonny, realizing that his uh, wax museum is failing, buys his way into Dwayne Esper's film business, and the two companies combine. Now, Dwayne, the uh, the director of these exploitation films, primarily that primarily kind of circled around the drug phase, the the kind of preying on the fear of mm-hmm. drugs, now has access to all of Sonny's inventory. And with that being said. Dwayne Esper's film Narcotic is released the same year, 1933, and it's a movie about the downfall of a drug addict. So it's really preying on this American fear of of this misunderstanding of drugs. So they take the movie on the road to premiere it, and once again, Elmer McCurdy tags along. So what they do with Elmer is they prop him up outside of theaters and inside the lobbies of theaters as a dead drug addict. Like, this is what happens... If you do drugs. Wow. <laughs> really? And they claim that the reason he's so well-preserved is because of all the, the weed cigarettes that he had injected into his into his penis. <laughs> Gosh. You know, the funny thing is, like, people just lapped that up. Like, they really believed it. You know, there was, this, there was, a, there was a major fear. I mean, rightly so. Drugs are bad, kids. <laughs> now, Elmer makes his first film appearance later. In the March of Crime, where his body is rotated on camera while the narrator speaks about the horrors of drug use. Oh, wow. So this is when Elmer makes his acting debut, his breakout acting debut. This is his big break. <laughs> so Elmer is has been associated with a couple of movies at this point, and he has been featured in at least one. That's amazing. Now, by this point, he has taken on the new persona of, there was a sign above him. Elmer McCurdy, the dope addict, one of the greatest dope addicts of all time. <laughs> and, and I hate it when people get typecasted. Yeah. Young actor. Elmer's just a young actor here trying to make his way in the in cinema, and they top, start typecasting. Oh, I hate that. For it's like, come on. He's never going to get out of the dope addict roles. Oh, darn it. <laughs> He's always going to play the bad guy. He's like Ray Liotta. <laughs> Now, uh, McCurdy's corpse travels for a bit with exploitation films and then ends up in a warehouse. Now, it's around this time. This is the point in history around, you know, we're, we're coming up on, on, the, on the late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s. This period is when people kind of start getting disconnected from the past of this corpse and forgetting that this is a real mm-hmm. person. This is when, you know, people start dying off. And the story stops stops getting passed around, and this is when the transition starts to the to where it's no longer a, a human cadaver. I see. Louis Sonny, you know, who has had the corpse at this point for for two decades, almost uh, dies June twenty fifth, nineteen forty nine. So we're in nineteen forty nine now, and his business, as well as his warehouse full of props, wax figures, and Elmer McCurdy, is inherited by his son Dan Sonny, and for the most part. This is where Elmer's corpse stays until 1968, just gathering dust 
in this warehouse beside old film canisters and mannequins and wax figures and dildos. It stays in the <laughs> warehouse for at least 19 years. <laughs> So this is probably the point, right, where any any knowledge of this being real is completely completely gone. This this almost twenty years where he's just gathering dust in this old warehouse. The only interaction that anybody has with McCurdy at this point, at one point in this twenty years, Dan breaks off one of McCurdy's arms and uh, chases his secretary around with it as a gag, and then reattaches it with electrician's tape. Wow, um, which is. Better, I guess, than what other people were doing to their secretaries in the in the mid fifties, which was just grabbing their ass and asking for a blowjob. Right. So, so in a way, Elmer was just a help, lot of sexual yeah, harassment at the time. Really helping, Elmer was helping him. Now, his straight arrow. Yeah. This also explains why the arm so easily breaks off in about twenty years or so, when the uh, the young crew member of the six million dollar man goes to tug on it because it was just reattached with electrician's tape. Mm, okay. Now, in 1968, Dan Sonny's entire inventory is purchased by two Canadians named Don Crisdale and Ed Leersch. And their their purpose, they what they intend on doing is making a wax museum of their own in Hollywood. And they do, but Elmer's left behind. Now, uh, a lot of podcasts, actually almost all the podcasts, uh, will say what, what, what these two Canadians end up doing is taking a kind of nitpicking through this warehouse, the ones that they want to take, and they go to South Dakota at the base of Mount Rushmore and set up a little exhibit there. And a lot of podcasts claim that this is when Elmer McCurdy was a part of this. He was not. This is a, this is false. This is mm. not true. He was in the warehouse. He didn't go on that. And they also say that wind, while at the base of Mount Rushmore, uh, is they blew the fingers and one of the ears and a little bit of the nose off. That's not what happened. That's not true. Elmer was in a warehouse the entire time. What likely happened with the fingers and the ear and the nose is Elmer had been traveling across the United States mm-hmm. for 50 fucking years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back and forth, unloaded, <laughs> loaded up, unloaded, loaded. Take a coffee table oh my and gosh. haul it across the United States for 20. And then tell me if it doesn't have some nicks and bumps. Yeah, in it. well, just check out. Any mannequin at a like a at a Savers, any mannequin at a dollar store, you know those things. They've been through it. Probably not as much as Elmer, and he's they're all pretty rough to look at. I mean, Elmer has really traveled. He's got miles on him, way more than he ever had. As that's what's sad about this is he did so much more. Yeah, as a corpse than he ever did while he was alive. (laughs) So now it's the fall of 1971, and Crosdale is making a haunted museum of wax in Long Beach. Uh, this is when he returns to the warehouse where his inventory is and sees what, sees what he's got there that he can use in this, and that's when he rediscovers Elmer McCurdy. Now, by this time, this is just a mannequin. Mm. All connections with the past are gone. It's no longer a person, as far as anybody's aware. It's just a mannequin, just a prop. Mm-hmm. Crosdale takes the body and... He surveys it. He's like, what I can do with this is I can put it in a coffin and wire it up to a pressure plate. And when people walk by it, it'll shake and it'll scare them. So he starts mounting McCurdy to this board. And when he drills holes and he drills a hole into the back of the neck. But whenever he starts drilling holes into the feet, a yellow pus starts oozing out of it. Really? And that's kind of a red flag to him. And he's like, well, that's odd. And then he continues to mount it in the coffin and forgets about it. <laughs> wow. That long afterward, huh? He's still draining. Yes. That's crazy. Yes. So like I said, Elmer's mounted in the coffin and becomes just another gag. 
in the unsuccessful haunted wax museum with a sign over his head that read the 1000 year old man. Mm. So he's got another role here to play in Hollywood. He's playing the 1000 year old man now. And this is where he stays until September of 1972 when Crosdale and Lurch, the owners of the attraction, fall back on their rent and run off to avoid, you know, getting hunted down by by debt collectors. And that's when the muse- museum building is uh, abandoned. At this point, the Long Beach Amusement Company seizes everything and McCurdy is placed in a closet at the home of one of the electricians that worked for them by the name of Ray Scott. That would be rough. <laughs> Elmer lives with Ray Scott in his home for about a year, just in his closet, in this man's closet, in his bedroom. There's a corpse. He's not aware oh, of it. Gosh. There's a corpse propped up in his closet. He sleeps with it for a year until uh, Long Beach Amusement decides to revamp the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse. So they change the name of it to the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse, and that's when old Elmer is pulled out of retirement and is ready to once again be employed. Ray Scott, the electrician, hangs Elmer inside the funhouse after spray painting him bright red and installing a blue light that would switch on when patrons approached. And this is where Elmer stayed for the next four years until he was discovered by Chris Haynes, the crew member of the $6 million man. And we are up to date with our story up. And on that, Elmer McCurdy, the, the, the Oklahoma outlaw, the 1,000-year-old man, the greatest drug addict that has ever lived, <laughs> he is buried in Guthrie, Oklahoma, in Summit View Cemetery under two foot of cement, to prevent somebody else from trying to dig the body up and do God knows else what with it. And what is called the boot hill portion of the graveyard that is for old outlaws. McCurdy is buried along legend Bill Dolan, who is on the same level as, as like Jesse James. Mm. He's buried along American outlaws Charlie Pierce, Richard Little Dick West. Whoa. <laughs> no wonder he was so angry. <laughs> and Bert Casey. Now, these are uh, like... Old West legends. They're legit, yeah. Right. And then among them is dumbass Elmer McCurdy. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, the thing is, speaking of resurrection, could you imagine, like, if he gets, if, like, he gets to come back to that body, wakes up, and he's, like, just spray-painted and (laughs) coughing, you know, (laughs) coughing up nickels. He's like, oh. <laughs> what the hell? Why do I look like a? I look like a backyard barbecue. Uh. Now there were three hundred attendees at his burial. Uh, most of them dressed in Western attire, even though, like I said, this wasn't even an old Western bandit or anything. <laughs> and it's important to note, just like you know, we're at the end here, but whenever, whenever they did the autopsy here the last time, they discovered that Elmer had tuberculosis. And many other diseases, and was probably not long for this world anyway. All oh, right. So he was in horrible health whenever he died. Wow. Oh, and uh, that's it, Bob. That's it, Op. I've got one other fun fact for you. So, one very young man, I'm assuring you're not going to know who this guy is, but uh, a young man named Mark Taylor, uh, whenever he was a young man, had actually happened to, to go to the Laugh in the Dark. Studio at some point in the '60s, maybe the maybe the yeah, '60s '70s, and uh, he saw Elmer McCurdy. Now he didn't know that it was a corpse at the time, but it it scarred him. It scared him to death. Hmm. 
and it was traumatizing to him, and he never forgot it. Now, this young man, would, Mark Taylor, would grow up to be a top artist for Mattel. Huh. And he used this vision of Elmer McCurdy to create the now iconic character Skeletor from He-Man. Really? I was thinking you were going to say Barbie, but Skeletor, that's pretty cool. Wow. Without Elmer McCurdy, there would be no Skeletor. He was the inspiration for Skeletor. That's so weird. Well, full circle, full air for Elmer. Elmer. Weird. And that is it, Op. That is it. Aside from that, I would like to say that the source that I used for this was primarily, probably about 95% of it, came from a book by a, an awesome author by the name of Mark Svenhold, who is a, a professor at Fordham University, who wrote the book, Elmer McCurdy, The Misadventures in Life and Afterlife of an American Outlaw. Uh, it's a great book. It's loaded to the gill with facts. It's thick, full of information. This guy really put his heart into this for years and and was like sure to get every single part of the story right to correct um, parts of the story that are wrong, that, that are often reported wrong. Uh, I really can't thank him enough for this book because it was it was a lot of helpful it was a lot of help making this episode as well as newspapers.com I, I, I love that website there's some tidbits in there I would also like to give a shout out to the podcast Hey Do You Remember uh, they gave us a shout out here recently I've been listening to them for about five or six years it's one of my favorite podcasts and uh, if you were into old like 90s 80s movies it's a nostalgia podcast where they review uh, old 80s and 90s movies and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I love it. I love it. I listen to it at least every other day. So if you're into movies, they're funny. Chris, Carlos, and Donna, uh, funny funny people, and they just they break down these movies bit by bit why they're ridiculous and why they love them. That's cool. Aside from that, we're yeah. I think you would like I'm it. I'm gonna up. check it out. I, I've never yeah. I didn't know about that. I'm gonna check them out. And on that, we're gonna close with our friend Leroy Luna. You know Leroy, don't you? Yeah, he's a good hugger. He does a fantastic podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where he it's a hardcore look at softcore crimes, just kind of a, a palate cleanser from the everyday murder and rape and molestation and bestiality and necrophilia and all the horrible things that podcasts like us cover. Yeah. He covers more more low-key crimes that are comical and funny with a heart kind of a hardcore look at it. So let's take a look at that promo, and after that, let's close her down. Op. All right. Well, I guess I'll just, um, I'll probably call you tomorrow. I know, well, I guess it is tomorrow already. You got to get up in like 30. Why are you doing this? You got to get up in like 30 minutes. You didn't give me an option. Well, I, I didn't want yeah, to. I know, I know. You want to spend time with me? I get it. All right. Well, I'll just call you tomorrow right after you get off work, okay? Uh, I know you will. Okay. Whatever. All right. Hugs. Huh? What? Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. 
Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.